This is a show about getting spooked for fun, and neither one of the hosts are associated with the attractions discussed in any way, except for those skeletons in Devin's closet. Some topics may go from ghoulish to ghastly, so viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to The Great American Scream. Gays, <laughs> bi's, trans's, and lesbians. Oh shit! I put the <laughs> lesbians. I'm sorry. I got to put you first. Why did you put the lesbians at the end? I meant to do it all out of order, and then it's, I just accidentally <laughs> didn't. You did, but the hello, GB. That was a thing for a while, where people were trying to redo it as GB. T- no, they were trying to do it as GBLT, which is stupid. Well, I thought they were trying to do GLBT. For like oh, okay. fiction, like when it was writing about it, which is one stupid. Huh? We gays are like gays already get enough. I almost said we gays, which I'm not a I'm not a true gay, but <laughs> um, y'all lesbians don't get enough. Give them one thing. <laughs> yeah, let them be first. <laughs> uh, but anyway, we're kind of at the the T section of our Pride Month. Uh, spectacular and i just i meant that in terms of in the calendar if you were to split june up into four sections (laughs) this week is what we should have done (laughs) uh but also we're talking about about those ones (laughs) well yeah what do you know about them we are going to talk about trends rep and horror today um here on episode 66 of the great american scream yes Uh, two-thirds of the way to 666 uh, yeah, that's how to, math works. To the mark of the beast. 66 is two thirds of yeah. 666. <laughs> Listen, yep. this is the closest we were ever going to get to episode 666 because if we wow. ever make it to that, something's gone horribly wrong. I'm, man, you have no faith in us. No, do you know how long it would have to take for us to get to episode 666? That would be like 12 years. That's so many. That's so very many yeah. years. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of years from now. How um, old will you be? We'll be 35 and 36. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah, that I'm would be. I'm going to yarts. <laughs> Big. Okay. Um, uh, so, yes, we are uh, nearing the end of Horror Pride Month. And to be transparent about what my plans for Horror Pride Month were, my first idea w- for this episode was to talk about uh, James Whale and the Bride of Frankenstein, which, uh, although very queer and very interesting story, and I would love to talk about more in the future, I didn't want to spend Pride Month talking primarily about cis gay men which is basically what we've talked about for a yeah. large majority of this month uh because all the queer voices as a whole are underrepresented in horror to just talk about white cis gay men would not be represent- representative of what the community looks like at all um yeah. so i would like to save that topic for another time all um, right in, in favor of talking about trans rep and horror today uh, and a couple of other housekeeping things uh just a reminder that we are now on a bi-weekly schedule uh we're yes, I've taken you, over. We're bringing you. <laughs> that was the B. We're bringing yeah. you a little summer of Scream. Uh, it's going to be, uh, you know, some more f- uh, kind of fun episodes. Game. The L was do. L Street. <laughs> um, we can. Uh, we'll do some like game episodes, some more fun stuff. Uh, maybe some more movie reviews or more commentary. If you guys enjoyed it, we might do like a mailbag or a Q and A episode at some point. Um, with the more research heavy episodes coming back in time for spooky season. Uh, we're going to kind of yeah. surf over the summer, but we're skeletons is how I made it scary. Um, That's how it becomes spook. Yeah. 
Uh, but uh, with that all out of the way, uh, let's get into today's episode topic, um, which uh, is, like we said, trans representation in horror. And I know we talked about this uh, during our Pride episode last year, uh, yep. but I wanted to give it its own episode because we kind of did one kind of big episode on all kind of like queerness and TGNC in yeah. horror. Um, but I really want to zone in on trans rep and horror uh, today uh, because horror films have been historically unkind to the trans I thought community. it was a little weird when the General Nutrition Center had like <laughs> had like a competitor named Terrible Generic <laughs> Nutrition Center. <laughs> and it was called TGNC. Thank you. Um, yeah, the horror genre has uh, kind of historically been unkind to the trans community. And yet trans people make up a significant portion of horror fans. Um, yeah. So it's the Disney villain uh, mentality of when you make the the trans or gay or black characters the most the best characters because they are having the most fun. Yeah, and you, that's you, basically going to be the bottom line of, uh, of this episode. But uh, I would like to examine a little bit how trans people have been treated in the genre historically and why it attracts trans people despite this. And of course, mm -hmm. as a disclaimer. As two queer people and one trans person, these are not our these are our views and opinions and interpretations of the films and the readings of these films. We do not speak for the whole community, uh, definitely not, and not everybody thinks the same way about these films that we do. Um, yeah. So yeah. And all listen, we all know that anything we say from this <laughs> point on can and probably will get us canceled by someone, and we just all need to understand that that's the world we live in. And it sucks. Yeah, we, we do not, like, I do not speak for the entire trans community. These are my opinions and readings as a, trans <laughs> as a trans person uh, watching these movies. Um, yeah. With that out of the way. And as a person who has a literal degree in, like, you have a Bachelor of Fine Arts, you are in some way qualified to talk about these things, not just as a trans person, but as, like, a person who does art. Yeah, as as are you, just not as a trans person, just only as a person with a BFA. Yeah, I only got the first one. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, let's let's dive in. Um. So we talked in last year's Pride episode a lot about the Hayes Code. Um. My drag name. Which, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Hayes Code. Code. Um. Uh. About how the Hayes Code kind of changed the landscape of the film industry for a really long time, specifically regarding queer and trans people. Uh, as being trans would have fallen under the, quote, abnormal sexuality umbrella that the Hayes Code banned. Uh, this did not necessarily prevent cross-dressing on camera. In, mm -hmm. in fact, cross-dressing in Hayes Code era films happened a lot. Um, right. But it was Hayes Code, so it had to be portrayed as bad. Exactly. So, for example, Some Like It Hot is a film that came out under the Hayes Code. And whether right. or not this film is an allegory, offensive, inconsequential, or just subjected subjected to transcoded readings is an entirely other kettle of fish. Yep. Um, but cross-dressing in film was pretty common for all genders under the Hayes Code, um, but it was almost exclusively played for comedic effect. And again, yeah. whether or not cross-dressing for comedy is okay, entirely different podcasts, whole third right. third kettle of fish. Yeah, and um, it should be said that Some Like It Hot specifically was later in the Hayes Code and was specifically like made in spite of the Hayes Code. Yes, it was um, meant to be yeah, on the more risque side. Right. You would, you would expect that if somebody was cross-dressing in another film, they would be punished like the Hayes Code wanted mm -hmm. 
to happen, but in Some Like It Hot, they're not. They're just yeah. running from the mob. Some Like It Hot, again, we can talk a different podcast to talk <laughs> about whether it's offensive or whatever. Yeah. Great movie <laughs> and hilarious movie at times. Yeah. Um, and also, to just put out there, is cross-dressing the same as being trans? Of course it isn't. Uh, but... <laughs> Uh, cross-dressing in film in the pre-modern era was read by a lot of audiences this way, despite like the way, especially that audiences during the Hays Code would have viewed these films with a very binary idea of gender. Yeah. Um, they, that didn't cross over to the point of being like, oh, cross-dressing just means like a person who identifies as one gender dressed as another. They like to them, it became like a, a trans or queer coded reading right just from an audience perspective right we also yeah in film as well when you see a character on screen you know the way they look is literally it becomes a part of the symbolism they represent because they're not a person they're a recording of a person you're watching so like they're like it is often shorthand for being trans whether or not that was purposeful or or like i like read by the audience like there's no way to separate the the movements of people who cross-dress and trans people and people who don't subscribe to a gender binary especially at that time because the understanding of gender and gender performance and dress was totally different than it is now yeah and there are still people alive who remember that shit and they're so much fun to talk to (laughs) um and it can still like even and pretty much almost all the movies we're going to talk about today, of course, do not feature an actual trans character, but a trans coded character or a character right. that cross dresses or whatever. And that can still contribute to harmful tropes, even if it wasn't the intention. And in fact, a lot of these of films course. try and go out of their way to say, no, this is not a trans person. This is X, Y, and Z. But it's so much about the way the audience reads it and the way the audience has been kind of trained to read it that yeah. contributes and to And what these the character tropes. symbolizes on the screen. Yeah. Um, and the way that trans people have been treated in pretty much all genres of film has never particularly been nuanced what? Uh, or <laughs> deep. Except in All in the Family, Beverly was great mm. and she was good. Yeah. Um, but in a lot of big major film, we kind of see it to fall into these four kind of main camps. Um, and again, not necessarily saying that the movies I'm about to talk about are good or bad movies. I just have a very specific way of viewing gender and gender presentation that can affect trans people or the way that they're viewed in film. Um, so the first one is gender as something to overcome. Think of like Mulan, uh, with movies like this, or basically any film where somebody disguises themselves as another gender in order to overcome some obstacle, join something where only men are allowed, because it's almost exclusively in this cis women disguising themselves as men. Uh, it's it's right. for these kind of movies, it's never really the other way around. Um, yeah, except in stuff like Some Like It Hot or in White Chicks. Well, white white chicks is one thing, but and I don't think some like it hot as gender is something to overcome. Uh, I would actually treat that more as the second thing with gender as the punchline, which is right. movies like Tootsie and Mrs. Doubtfire. This is usually, and I would think some like it hot. Uh, this is usually the other way around of the previous type, being almost exclusively men disguising themselves as women, and man must deal with what woman goes through. Hijinks ensue. Ha ha ha! It's very funny, um, right? And I both think of these are kind of the same genre b- 
because they make the same comment about yeah. gender itself of that, like, if you over, like, becoming a man is seen as overcoming womanhood. Exactly. And becoming a woman is seen as, like, losing your manhood. Yeah, and exactly. Yeah. And, like, there, it, it's no coincidence that... The, the 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 way that the gender like crossover yeah. is in these two or the way that they are um and i personally think that that tootsie and to, a, to an extent some like it hot are way more guilty of this than mrs doubtfire is i think mrs doubtfire kind of gets a bad rep in this but again different podcast um uh the third one is gender as tragedy which is i think of films like boys don't cry dallas buyers club basically any film with explicit trans suffering or trauma to make a point usually as either an advancement for a cis main character or to teach the audience that transphobia is bad yeah but in a like look at us yeah and it's filmmakers doing a good yeah and what's what's so disappointing about these movies a lot of the time besides the fact that the trans people in it are pretty much exclusively played by cis people but one of the most upsetting things about it is that it's like in boys don't cry like the hate crimes or the things that happen to the trans characters in these movies are treated as almost inevitable like they're gonna happen no matter what uh whether it's it's illness like in dallas buyers club or or assault like boys don't cry um that they're like, oh, look at these poor trans people. This is what happens to them, which is like, of course, yeah. like this is something that trans people go through. But to frame it as something that is inevitable for any trans person is not helpful. Yeah. And it it portrays the, you know, the system as immovable and yeah. the the victims of it as as victims. Uh, and not to bring it back around to all in the family with Beverly, but. <laughs> That actually, Beverly is often cited as kind of the beginning of barrier gaze because she ends up uh, ends up dying at the mm-hmm. hands of a of a crappy uh, transphobe slash homophobe because a whole bunch of things. But the uh, it is notable that that was actually a really good portrayal at the time of people not uh, subscribing to a binary, and the only thing that people took from it was the barrier gaze part of it and yeah. the the still really good advancement of uh uh the other the the woman's character development because she was like god made beverly just the same way she he made me and it was like ah oh, that's good for christians in the 70s anyway, yeah exactly watch, that, watch those episodes of all in the family <laughs> this is now an all in the family <laughs> podcast um and the fourth one is what i would call gender as a nightmare, which is where horror falls. Uh, <laughs> That's my life, Adam. Yeah. Gender as a nightmare. And not necessarily gender as something to be feared, but using gender as a tool to cause fear. Um, mm. Either from a filmmaker's perspective or from a character from a villain's perspective. Yeah. Uh, and thusly, da da da, horror in horror, trans people have historically always appeared as the antagonist. Um, surprising no one yeah because to many writers and directors it would be and this is a problem too with not just horror with all film and books and plays and everything uh this is the problem with everything is that many creators writers directors feel it to be inconsequential to have a trans protagonist uh because a lot of these cis creators feel like having a trans character in your work 
means that you are somehow commenting on gender or sexuality because yeah. your protagonist is trans or your whatever character is trans. It's like, oh, you're making some kind of statement on on sexuality, on gender, or you are trying to make this like a queer film or a trans film by having a, a main character that is trans, uh, which like is you don't have it does not have to be this way. Like a character can right, be simply right. trans. Just, yeah, that's a problem that all of storytelling has yeah. in our current uh, idea of it that everything that is not uh, the societal default is seen as somehow you know making a comment or uh, you know when somebody of somebody who's not a white cis straight man makes a piece that happens to have a character that shares their identity they are suddenly you know making a self insert yeah. character but when that same cis straight white man makes a piece that has a trans character or a gay character or a black character, they are seen as like on one side as performing activism and on the other yeah. side as, as uh, writing about something they can never understand or whatever. Yeah. It's just, we need to stop acting yeah. as though every movie is written by written and created by one person alone. And yeah. And it, it happens in all film, but in horror, especially it's why trans people appear as antagonists versus protagonists because when a cis creator makes the trans character, tra the trans coded character, the antagonist, it's then like, oh, we can use dysphoria or gender for for fear purposes, for villain purposes. When it's the yeah. protagonist, they're like, they it's it's, it's inconsequential to them. It's like, yeah. oh, like it doesn't like we're not saying any like what are we trying to say by making the trans character right. protagonist? And, Nothing. You don't yeah. have to say anything. <laughs> and when you make a trans character a protagonist and being trans is not a part of the struggle they go through then to most creators you wouldn't then it would be like well why would we mention that they're trans if that's not part of the story they go through yeah and it's like what i i don't know yeah. how to tell you to do film good yeah and that's not saying that it is it like it is inherently bad or you cannot have trans antagonists in films. We're going to get into that later. You can, yeah. and we should, but we're going to get into that later. Um, but the way that it has happened historically We in all horror, know that Caitlyn Jenner exists. <laughs> we know that she, I don't need to villain. explain that joke. <laughs> um, we, uh, um, the, the way that the it happens in horror Man, with she's antagonists she's a real stinker, is, huh? Yeah, it's villain. Like I said, <laughs> villain. Um, as like, cis creators and creating these trans antagonists who use gender as a tool for fear and it is a fear of the quote unnatural or things that i said we but i mean cis people uh, aren't familiar with yeah uh, which is why trans characters get shoehorned into antagonists um right and we because we also never get trans or trans coded villains who are evil for a reason other than gender dysphoria except for the sleepaway camp sequels interestingly enough but we'll get there yeah hold on that's that's come around the turn later yeah this also just makes sense because for a, a cis creator especially one who doesn't have any kind of knowledge of cis of trans people other than the fact that they experience dysphoria which is a controversial statement that will get me canceled on twitter <laughs> uh <laughs> um that the scariest thing to any cis person about being trans is, is the fact that you magically have this dysphoria and that's frightening or whatever, which, you know, doesn't understand the complexity of the trans experience and doesn't yeah. understand that, like, anybody can feel dysphoric about their own relationship to their assigned gender. Like, yeah. That's how gender works. That's how gender works. Um, Like, we... 
I say again, I said we, I mean cis people need to stop that thinking about really funny. <laughs> think about transness in such a binary. Which it's, it's like the yeah. antithesis of anyway. Um so it's interesting because in almost all the films we were about to talk about, none of the characters are actually trans. They right. are usually most of the time men who are cross-dressing as women that get read as trans. Either by people who who either don't know that it's intended to not be trans and they want to use that to like degrade the film or to further their transphobia or by modern like queer theorists who want to in an act of reclamation or an act of retroactive analysis read the character as trans. Yeah. And in a lot of these films, it is intentional and kind of the earlier films. And then later on, we kind of get this like, accidental or like directors going oh you know it would be scary if you put on a wig or whatever because because yeah. we because we introduce these transcoded antagonists people who write horror and make horror began to recognize like cross-dressing as a fear tool and yeah. it no longer became about gender dysphoria they were like oh just having the killer like i think of uh one of the texas chainsaw sequels where leatherface is in like a dress and a wig for half of the movie for right. not any particular reason other than i think the directors were like oh that would make it scary if right he Art was the clown does the same thing yeah and terrifier, in terrifier. We, and we talked about it you know that the uh Everything in horror at some point gets boiled down to shorthand that, you know, if you just have somebody walk very slowly, you get that impression that maybe they are, you know, unyielding and untiring like the mm -hmm. best zombies. Like everything becomes shorthand. Yeah. Um, and that's just also film's problem. Yeah. Hey, film, stop doing that. <laughs> and because there's still a huge portion of society that does not understand or fully understand what being trans means, uh, especially in horror films where mental illness and dysphoria get discussed a lot and often discussed badly, like yeah. not not in a, in a forward-facing manner, uh, audiences are going to keep conflating these two things. Right. Uh, and you it's still harmful even if it isn't intentionally malicious. Of course. And two things here. One, would you say that we live in a society? <laughs> and two, uh, the, you know, when we're talking about shorthand and we're talking about how the general audience, which is generally a, we, an, we're not even talking about the actual audience. We're talking about an assumed audience, yeah. which is assumed to be not just, not even the numerical majority at times, like always assumed to be white, to be cis, to be male, to be straight. Because, you know, the other assumption is that they have no mental illness and they mm -hmm. have never experienced any kind of feeling that makes them feel like their uh, gender is something more complex than a binary. Yeah. And that's what horror, what bad horror plays on and what even good horror sometimes incorporates is mm -hmm. anything that is different from what what an audience member knows to be the default way of life. Yeah. Will be seen as scary, which is. Also, how horror as a genre is a commentary on, you know, how society imprints what is default. Yeah, exactly. And whether or not the character in question is trans or just cross-dressing is not important to most right. audiences. The character is just the other quote and therefore invokes fear. It's like, yeah. they, like most audiences will not look into it, which is with as much nuance as we are. Yeah. Um, so uh, we do but have to we have to say that a lot of audience members will understand that it is more nuanced because yeah. people are actually smarter than we give them credit for. It's just yes, as a layman, yeah, audience. as like the mass. Uh, so uh, we kind of have to start by talking about Psycho. 
1960. All right. Uh, which, although it was not technically the first appearance of a cross-dressing antagonist in a horror or a thriller, that honor actually goes to another Hitchcock film, uh, Murder, which came out in 1930. Uh, it what is a great name. <laughs> Murder! Exclamation point. Uh, hey, it is. Um, we are uh, just a little service <laughs> announcement for you, uh, big tea gas heads. If you listen to last year's Pride special, this part may look a little familiar. Yeah. <laughs> We are going to reiterate a couple of same things, but it's for a different point. Um, yeah. So uh, Psycho, although not the first, uh, is by far the most impactful on cinema as a whole, especially in the horror genre, because it basically invented the cross-dresser as killer trope that we talked about last year. Um, so quick summary of that. Norman Bates, who is an iconic horror villain, like beloved yeah, and iconic, uh, is Queen. creepy because of the overwhelming love he has for his mother. And he wants to be her in order to keep her alive well after her death. And he does this by dressing up as her. Um, Norman also heavily queer coded. Right. Which comes from the idea that when homosexuality was uh, defined as a mental illness, it was often also associated with uh, Freudian, but not said by Freud, because Freud was actually very pro LGBT people. Um, Freudian ideas that people become gay because they had a bad relationship or an obsessive relationship with their mother. Yeah. The idea of like effeminate men or men who right. are not masculine enough or whatever. Um, and when this reveal happens of that, the the mother the whole time has been Norman dressing up as her. Uh, this conversation between the district attorney and Simon and uh, the DA goes, he's a transvestite. And Simon goes, not exactly. A man who dresses in women's clothing in order to achieve a sexual change or satisfaction is a transvestite. But in Norman's case, he was simply doing everything possible to keep the illusion of his mother being alive. So, like, we even say so in the context of the film that Norman is not trans. They use the term transvestite, which was understood to mean the same thing that transgender means to us today, even though those words do have different meanings, but language was different. Yeah. Um, And the the phrasing of a man who dresses as in woman's clothing is transvestite is also like not even at the time would not have been seen as technically correct, but it's a DA Talk, yeah. or it's Simon talking about shit he doesn't know about. Yeah. Um, and so they even they go out of their way to say, no, he is not a trans person. He's just loves his mother. But of course, that's how audiences are going to read it, despite whether or not you say it. Yeah, um, this is what this is not to bring up a transphobe in an episode about transness, but when in your final book, you're like, actually, Snape was a good dude who did real good stuff. But the whole time he had been like really mean to children. Like you can't just say in the footnote of your like AO3 Goodreads that actually this character is not a 13-year-old girl. It's a 5,000-year-old dragon. Yeah. Which makes it okay. It doesn't make it okay, no. Brenda. <laughs> um, Brenda K. Rowling. <laughs> um, so uh, and this is the beginning of establishing Transcoded characters as not just a single non-conforming individual, but as like a male persona and a female persona. That that's linking what's, to the mental illness. Yeah, yeah, that's what gets used kind of to weaponize like transness and turn it into a horror trope. Uh, Norman even says at some point in the movie, uh, "I think we're all in our private traps, clamped in them, and none of us could ever climb out. I was born in mine. I don't mind it anymore." Like it, it, it when you read into it the way that we are becomes very nuanced. Is that 
Norman cannot perform gender, like, quote, normally, and his trap is having to conform to these strict gender rules and expectations. But that is giving this movie a little bit more credit than... than yeah, probably. Yeah. It's due. And, you know, the language of trap, which, one, is a yeah. thing still in modern LGBT context, but not even on that level. Again, whole other podcast to talk yeah. about that, because that's problematic anyway. Mm -hmm. But it harkens back to this idea that is said in Dress to Kill, which we mentioned last year, yeah. of uh, a trans person is, a, is one gender trapped in another's body. Yeah. Like this idea that Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, that like there's another person trapped in, an, in, in you, which was also a yeah. thing about gay people. Yeah, that it's not you, it's something was, else. It's somebody else. It's something else. else within you, yeah. Um, uh, another notable example of this being 1991 Silence of the Lambs. Uh, and also the same thing that Psycho does, Silence of the Lambs makes a pretty explicit effort to state that the character of Buffalo Bill is not yeah. trans. He just, quote, thinks he is. Like, the quote from <laughs> yeah. the movie is that he says, there's no correlation in literature between transsexualism and violence. Transsexual is very Stop passive. there. <laughs> Stop there. You're good. Stop. Uh, Billy is not a real transsexual. He just thinks he is. He tries to be. Listen, lot to unpack here. We're not going to yeah. unpack all of it. It's a big suitcase. Yeah, um, I want to talk, though, real fast about I like the idea that it, if a trans person commits violence, they're no longer trans. I like guess, that, yeah. Like, like the second it beco they become something else, they then become yeah. a demon or something. Yeah, a, like a lot a lot going on in yeah. this. There and are I three different kinds of relationships to, the gen to gender. There is cisgender, transgender, and arsonist. <laughs> Um, and I think the main problems with the way that they handle us in this effort, like there's a lot of problems, but I think the main yeah, yeah, things, yeah. the main things are one that the audience connotation is still there because it is a transcoded character and yeah. people are still going to read Coding it Coding doesn't care what your text is. Exactly. Number two, the film brings transness into the conversation, but does not give us a depiction of what a trans person actually is we don't right. get the film anything doesn't present yeah a, a a positive like not positive as in good but like a accurate well like a an affirmative case yeah for what they're talking about they only present the the, the nominative case yeah. yeah audiences don't have anything to compare it to which is exactly I think when we, you talk about like how do i put like queer villains or whatever in uh, in my stories and whatever i make is that the queer villain has to be the exception not the norm they cannot be if the queer villain is the only queer person in your right. work, that's where you get problems rise because then that queer person becomes representative. Yeah. Um, Unless we're in Sleeping Beauty and then <laughs> queerness is actually the sickest thing about it. She's, she's loud. Um, and the, the third one is the whole idea of somebody being too like mentally ill to understand who they are has always been both a homophobic and a transphobic talking point. And yeah. we should like the I believe right now, maybe in like a post transphobia, post homophobia world right now, there is no way to use that idea in like a nuanced way. It's right. just like we've Especially already not, messed it up again, so much. Maybe in a conversation with one human being, but not in a movie. No, like, like not, yeah, in a world where transphobia didn't exist, maybe. But yeah. Um, and I do want to mention, you know. This is the end of Pride, and Adam and I were talking about this the other night. Um, I think that, you know, going through our history like this is obviously important every year, and it is always interesting to me as a 
as a bi man who, you know, did not experience a lot of homophobia in his life, but, you know, tries to be an active ally of the fights going on right now, how how clearly linked there are discussions online that we've had in the past few years about the shared struggle of LGBT people and why we are the community that we are and why specifically our letters have formed a political coalition that's fighting for for our rights. And when you go back and even look at movies that are coded to look like us and act like us, the there is so much shared, uh, shared. I don't want to say victimhood. There is shared attacks that so many of these these attacks against uh, trans characters or things about trans people that are used to demean them are the same things that were used and were used and not so much used today to attack gay men and gay women in in earlier times especially specifically in the 20th century and so like and this has come up multiple times when we're talking about you know trans the trans ban in the military literally 20 years ago we were having the same argument about gay men in the military these are the same attacks and that is why we're a political coalition because we might not all have the same exact struggles person to person we may not even between groups have shared struggles but we do share in the fights because at some point they're the same fight and i just think that's nice to nice to notice that's my yeah. little that's my little <laughs> mid podcast okay. sweet thing yeah that was nice we're going to talk about sleepaway camp now but that was nice hell yeah <laughs> um uh but yeah um and sleepaway camp of these is probably i call sleepaway camp the big one uh it, yeah just okay sleepaway camp complicated it is a beloved and iconic entry into the 80s B-movie slasher trend. It is one that has stood the test of time that people still love. And it is one of the most blatant and famous films to use the transgender killer trope. Yeah. Um, so spoiler alert for the famous twist ending of this movie. The film follows Angela, uh, who is orphaned and taken in by her aunt after her father and twin brother Peter were killed in a boating accident. And then she attends a summer camp with her cousin when campers begin vanishing and being killed. And at the end of the film, it, does, it reveals not only that Angela is the killer, but she is actually her identical twin, not identical, her twin brother, Peter. And that when her aunt adopted her, she forced her to live under Angela's identity because she wanted a daughter instead of a son. I'm also using she, her for Angela because that's what she uses in all the films. Right. Um, and it's implied that her struggle with gender dysphoria is what led to her becoming a killer. Uh, and the way they reveal this is both the most iconic thing about this and the most harmful thing yeah. about this. With, and the most camp. Yeah. Again, with, not, pun not intended. <laughs> with a naked Angela, like, revealing that she is in, like, a masculine, quote-quote, body with a penis, yeah. standing and, like, moaning, and that's the end of the movie. Another character goes, oh, my God, she's a boy. That's the end of the movie. That's it. Yeah, which, what a line I to know. end on. Um, this effect was achieved by having a male body double wear a uh, mask of actress Felisa Rose's face because uh, they originally were going to put this. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to be blue on this podcast. Wow. They were going to put a big fake penis on this poor girl. Put- and her mom said, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, mom. Um, but that's not important. Uh, and this movie is so fascinating because it is up there with one of the most harmful depictions of trans people in horror. But a lot of trans people really love this movie. 
I do not yeah. speak for all trans people. I personally love it. I know many other trans horror fans that do, but also plenty that do not. Not to mention all the trans people I know that love this movie are also deeply aware of its problems. Right, of course. And it's like, I think there's two main reasons for this. One being the same that just happens with a lot of queer-coded and trans-coded horror villains where they kind of get adopted or like reclaimed as as icons or as trans characters. Yeah. And the other reason is that I think Angela... And like this is really saying something on the the, the, the status of trans oh, representation no. in horror is that Angela yeah. is one of the closest things we get in horror to an actual depiction of an actual trans person, which is like that's really saying something. Yo, I know the bar is underground. Which is like, is she an accurate trans uh, depiction of a trans person? No, she is not. However, she's much more overtly trans than trans coded like Norman Bates is. She's a person who was assigned a different gender at birth and now lives and identifies under another gender and experiences dysphoria relating to her gender and gender presentation. Um, which right. is a lot more than can be said for all the other characters that we've talked about so far. Um, and although she was, of course, forced to transition, it's not made explicitly clear whether or not Angela enjoys being femme, being called a girl, identifying as a girl or or otherwise. Uh, you know, that's the yeah. other thing is that Angela doesn't really get a voice in this movie. Right. Um, she's not a she's not a character that we have opportunities to empathize with. Yeah. At least on, again, like an explicit basis. I would also say it's a really fascinating Again, just like we did on Elm Street and just like we do with all these films, there's a point where we're giving way too much credit to something that was definitely not intended. Mm -hmm. But the idea of the the gender, like the gender presentation of of Angela being forced upon her by not society and not, you know, the way trans people experience it which is just that it is there it is forced upon her by an actual person yeah, by and it's one almost person. an inversion of the the actual experience of some trans people yeah in an actually fascinating way that kind of is just by existing a commentary on that and how society imposes gender upon people whether they want it or not like the it's I don't know. It's just like actually an interesting way to do it. Yeah, it's complicated and very interesting. And I think it's why people are so divided on if they like this movie or not. Um, yeah. And so in the sequels, which I mentioned earlier, Angela is said to get gender confirmation surgery. They say that right. she gets like a quote sex change operation because, of course, it's what they say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but she gets gender confirmation surgery to yeah. present the as female. Of that vocabulary is fairly recent. Yes, uh, yeah. yeah, to get to present as as female, uh, and is still the central villain of the franchise. However, it is no; she's not the villain anymore because of her struggles with gender dysphoria. She's a villain because she murders campers who break the rules of camp, and she's so yeah. devoted to <laughs> to like the camp rules that she kills, and like. That's the closest we've gotten so far to a trans villain who is not a villain because they're trans. She murders because she loves camp. And this yep. Sleepaway Camp 2, without the first one, right. would be Th perfect. Adam, that's what I was saying. We don't need the first one anymore. Yeah, like... Like, you so you can watch Sleepaway Camp 2 and somebody can go, wait, does that mean there's a one? And we just say, no. No. <laughs> that's... There wasn't, actually. The closest we've gotten so far, which is so yeah, very the, interesting the, to me. 
yeah, she's a kick-ass character in the other ones. Yeah. You don't... Um, there were a couple that I left out that there's just simply aren't time to talk about. Uh, yeah. one, of, one of the big ones being uh, Seed of Chucky, uh, which of course. is a lot. I, I think Our a, favorite film. Later on, uh, we might do a, a watch and a review of, of Seed of Chucky uh, just because of how much of a wild ride it is. Like We should. Because Seed of Chucky is also like not ju- like Seed of Chucky is so straight and so queer at the same time. John Waters is in it. It can't be well, straight. Yeah, it's because it's so camp. Yeah. And as Susan Sontag said, not all gays have a sense for camp, but gays as a group have the best sense of camp. <laughs> and like, you know, Don Mancini, who is the, the creator of Chucky, is is a, is a queer person. Uh, and, yeah. it, and it comes out. A straight in, person couldn't make those. <laughs> it comes out in Seed of Chucky. Um, and the whole thing with, with Glenn slash Glenda and Seed of Chucky, introducing a somewhat nuanced conversation about gender into a child's play film. Uh, And about gender presentation and feeling like a boy versus feeling like a girl versus feeling like both versus feeling like neither. So like, yeah, it's there's not enough time. We should do an episode about it. You know, it it links to, funnily enough, John Waters ideas about, you know, and and even like uh, Mel Brooks's ideas about comedy that like the problem with comedy is it ages the fastest out of any medium. But it also is a lot of the time a better vehicle for like interesting commentary and and satire and just thought in general than drama and you know Mel Brooks and John Waters would do pieces that yeah now are like problematic or whatever but they're still in like good commentary like the ideals behind them are still good yeah exactly um so now i just want to talk about a couple of films that are trans they're transcoded i'd say more trans readings of yeah. they're not transcoded overtly in the way that like psycho is yeah but this is a this is the queer theory yeah part of the podcast little queer theory section queer theory section now because trans people are so starved for representation this is often what we have to do <laughs> just reading yeah. films a certain hey, way LGBTs, to you find know how ourselves. you do this with everything yeah we're gonna trans do it right now really got to do it in horror. Yeah. And there are certain subgenres or tropes in horror besides the the trans person as killer trope that trans people have seen themselves in. Um, right. First one I want to talk about, and this one was interesting that I actually read an article uh, about the queer reading of this film, was An American Werewolf in London, which came out in 1981. Very interesting yeah. film to do a trans reading of, but hear me out. Um, if you haven't seen it, this film is a horror comedy. Uh, and so it is about uh, Jack and David who are in London uh, after, after being bitten by a werewolf. David wakes up in a London hospital to realize that Jack is dead and he is now a werewolf. In fact, he is the last werewolf. And an undead Jack explains that he remains in limbo until the curse of the werewolf is wiped from the earth. Hence, David must die. Uh, David goes on this like chaotic spree in Piccadilly Circus Gets surrounded by police. This nurse who's been romancing for the movie, Alex, confesses her love to him before he is shot. And then the werewolf curse is broken, but he is dead. It's the end of the movie. It's funny, right? Hilarious. <laughs> um, so A real gut buster. This werewolves, werewolves by nature and just the way that they've been depicted in forever are outcasts, especially the way yeah. that this film treats them. A werewolf is a disruption of normal, moral, and social order in society. And there's also this idea of the werewolf transforming at night and being a seemingly normal person who walks amongst everybody else during the day with a secret 
right. uh, nobody knowing the truth about their curse. Yeah, um, we've we've talked about this before, I believe, that a lot of these horror monsters can pretty easily be like be placed onto it within queer theory pretty pretty clearly. Yeah. Um, and it kind of does the same thing that Nightmare on Elm Street 2 does in this regard. Uh, a heterosexual romance becomes the solution to the queer yeah. monster. Just let um, the werewolf kiss the kiss the ghost. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing is that their relationship, especially since it happens in secret. Yeah. I digress. Um, Have what the takes- ghost come out in Piccadilly Circus and be like, <laughs> I love that wolf man. And then they shoot him and then the ghost goes away. What takes this film kind of into the trend. And then we see them up in heaven and then they ride a big <laughs> pole down to hell like Lil Nas X. <laughs> what takes this film kind of into the transverse, uh, uh, as you will, is the body horror. <laughs> to the transverse. Uh, it's the body horror. Body horror is very representative of transness in the genre because horror is one of the only genres where we see bodies in a transformative state and bodies moving and in transgression and changing. Uh, And to see a body exist in that state uh, as something that can be changed is exciting, even in a horror context, because we don't want to see it anywhere else. Yeah, a physical representation of the kind of existing in some kind of space between or outside of your uh you know at birth assigned sex like it it makes so much sense that something like that would it it makes sense that in freaking alien yeah get that like um yeah uh the other one i have two more i want to talk about one is hereditary uh Mm. which the first time that i i watched this movie i did not pick up on this and then in a later watch uh i i kind of began to see it uh there's a big theme in Hereditary of feeling alienated from your body, uh, specifically in Charlie, the the, the daughter. Um, yeah. We know this because, spoiler alert, uh, Charlie is revealed to be either a vessel for the Demon King payment or Charlie is payment. It's not quite made explicitly clear. Yeah, we also never mentioned this. Paimon is a character in Genshin Impact. Thank you. <laughs> which is a game that the gays play. Uh, so that's a fun fact. I've connected the dots. Yeah. <laughs> connected them. Um, so, and her beheading was part of a ritual to get payment out of a female body and into a male body, the body of her brother, Peter. Um, and it was Peter, also the dead name of, of Angela and sleepaway camp. Yeah. Um, <laughs> don't think that was a reference, but it could have been, um, <laughs> When it's revealed at the end that Payman uh, slash Charlie has possessed Peter, one of the cult members goes, Charlie, you're all right now. We've corrected your first female body and given you this healthy male host. Uh, Okay. So Charlie wears this like baggy clothing and doesn't quite seem to know what to do with herself or how to act around other people. In what's very uh, representative of like dysphoria, especially as a young child. Um, And then Peter... It's kind of like losing his grip on reality and loses control over his own body because Charlie does not really merely like change from a female body to a male body. She kind of steals the male body in this. Yeah. And this brings up an interesting point of the trans masculine in horror, which we pretty much barely see anywhere, good or bad representation, horror or anything. Yeah. We do not see trans masculine people in media. Yeah. A Which lot. we can definitely link back to our discussion of transness in most it encapsulating these three genres mm-hmm. and that the far more common thought for a default audience of men is the idea of 
a one of them, quote unquote, losing their manliness and becoming yeah. something else. That exactly. Nobody, that that the the cross from woman to man is something done is far more difficult and doesn't happen as often. And when it does, it's this like like it's a masquerade. Yeah, it's and it's and, almost treated as destruction. As like in yeah. Hereditary, the female body, Charlie, is destroyed to create the male body, Peter, and is therefore not virile, unable to reproduce, taking something away from both women and men, which is a reflection of the fear of the transmasculine that a lot of people have, especially yeah. from their own families with the whole thing of like, oh, if you transition, if you take testosterone or whatever, you won't be able to have children, which is like value- valuing the life of a hypothetical future child over that of over a the, currently yeah. living trans child. Yeah. Um, and uh, Payman is male, and even when disembodied and, and being in Charlie, he's, quote, covetous of a male human body because that's it complements his essence. That's how he, he feels where he feels he should be. And his yeah. journey to find it is what drives the film's, the film's terror and what makes the, the film scary. Um, and I think it's, it's very interesting uh, to kind yeah. of bring that into it discussion also in this movie. It also plays into the two different identities in the yeah. same body problem, but... You know, yeah, I think in it's, a it more is modern interesting way. both as commentary and as something unintentional and as a reading. Um, yeah. And then finally, uh, I want to mention Reanimator, not just because it's one of my favorite horror movies. It is. Uh, but yeah. I really think it ha- can and should have an explicitly trans reading in in Herbert West. OK, uh, sure. In our main character. OK, here's the thing. Yeah. Herbert West, Herbert West. His whole idea his whole thing is that, you know, he's got the reagent. He's trying to to reanimate the dead. He's successfully reanimating the dead. Um, and he is this very Dr. Frankenstein kind of God complex going on. And his it, the focus is on what he wants to gain control over. Basically, he wants to spit in God's face and go, I make the rules now. And, and isn't that the gayest thing you've ever heard? That's the thing. And, like, there's – a monologue that he does in the second one in Bride of Reanimator, uh, which is even more. Y'all. It's good. Great it's good. Name. Third movie, not good. Beyond Reanimator, not good movie. Don't watch it. Watch the first two, though. Um, he when somebody calls his work, he's very like prideful of his work and, and his his overcoming death and his the control he has over these bodies. And somebody uh, in that movie calls it blasphemous. And he says blasphemy before what God, a God repulsed by the miserable humanity he created in his own image. I will not be shackled by the failures of your God. I have taken refuse of your God's failures and I have triumphed. And like I make yeah. a joke often about that, like every trans person should get. Uh, I will not be shackled by the failures of your God tattooed on their ass. Um, like yeah. the, the, the kind of very triumphant idea. What's of- the Patreon goal, Adam, <laughs> that we have to get to for you to tattoo that on your ass. Oh, it has to like a million dollars. Like, okay. <laughs> I, I want to give it back to you. I want to give it back to you. Um, but, uh, like the very kind of triumphant kind of trans reading of, being self-made and and t- having this control over your body and over what your body does and becomes uh, is yeah. something we don't really see a lot. As often, transness is depicted as something to overcome, not just an idea of, oh, to not be trans anymore, but like trans transness and like the goal being to be like – mistaken for a cis person or to read a cis or whatever and to alternate that with this kind of reading of like no i i i created myself and the way that i am right now is all because of me is 
very interesting. Um, yeah, I would I would also link that back to when we were talking about the shared roots of fear about uh, being transgender or being gay or being mentally ill. That you know, the first time I ever felt good about being a person who has like ADHD and depression was like a Tumblr post that was like, "If you can't make your own serotonin, store bots fine." <laughs> like this idea that it is not an attempt to become the default, like you said, yeah. the idea of the default, but it is, you know, the attempt to be just a happier and more, uh, more whole person yeah. to, in whatever way that means to you. And it's a new thing for, for society now as we are, cause it has been a while since our society, if it ever did allowed a generation of, trans people to live the lives they wanted to live safely and healthily and we are now at a point where there are people who are experiencing gender euphoria yeah. as trans people and that is fucking sick yeah i think and it, reanimator it, it is a gender new. euphoria movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it is new before now i mean not new in the grand scheme of history yeah but in asking like a society, cultural idea Right. So you can understand why those ideas didn't come, especially not from a cis creator. I wouldn't yeah. be able to do that. I don't know how. Uh, and uh, also with Reanimator, the reagent, it's not a metaphor for hormones, but the symbolism is really there. It's yeah. the syringe and the fact that it's not in the movie, but it is in the in the in the short story that Herbert injects himself with a diluted version of the reagent in order to be able to like stay up at night yeah. and like work faster and there is like there is a cut scene i think where dan and this movie is a little homoerotic quite homoerotic too where dan uh gives like does one of the injections for herbert all i'm saying yeah. is that i think we should remake reanimator but herbert's trans now uh okay. and also it should be me <laughs> okay okay that's good there's also just the idea of giving life through this thing yeah that like obviously there is a Although when we're putting it into the context of this kind of triumphant trans story, I think that it is also a very relatable experience of uh, the the death of like the metaphorical death that like parents of trans people talk about when yeah. they're being, you know, dramatic where they're like, oh, my, yeah, my like morning, my, my yeah. died and yeah, whatever that like the triumphant thing is. Like, this is actually very cool what he's doing. Most yeah. of the time we would think of bringing the dead back to life as a no, no, very bad thing. But in this case, he's not bringing, you know, he is bringing new life into being rather than. Yeah. That's, and it that's is, you cool. know, it is bad what he is doing, but <laughs> I do love him. Well, um, that's your opinion, I guess. <laughs> um, but uh, bottom line is that if they ever announce that there's a reanimator remake and, uh, I don't at least don't get an audition. I'm going to need everybody. Then we're boycotting. Write some very angry letters. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for listening to this episode of The Great American Scream. If you enjoyed, please leave a rate and review on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. But the best way to spread the word about the show is to tell a friend. So please do that. We also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash greatscreampod. We have early access to episodes, a, a commentary track for the second Nightmare on Elm Street film, uh, a stream archive. It's a fun time. Please go check it out. Adam, can you pimp our social medias, please? Uh, yes, you can check us out on Facebook at The Great American Scream or much more frequently on Twitter and Instagram at Great Scream Pod. Uh, please send us if there's any movies that we didn't talk about in this that you uh, 
want to mention, uh, please uh, send them our way. Uh, you can tweet at us or post using the hashtag TGAS. And as always, uh, if there is something you'd like to hear about in the show, please let us know. Tweet it at us because uh, your suggestion may become the topic for a future episode. Yes. Special thank you goes out to Michael Segudo for doing the intro disclaimer, as well as Stevie Viola, who does the intro and outro music. You can find him on Twitter and on YouTube. Also, a very special thank you to all of our patrons of the Man in the Fields level, which are Regina, Gail, Chris, Bree, and Ben. Thank you so much. And a super, super special thank you to two of our three kings, uh, Melinda and Joyce. You could be the third king. <laughs> you could be the third king for just $25 a month. Uh, I've been Devin Wright. I'm Adam McConnell. And hopefully you have been spooked. Goodbye, Pride Month. <laughs> Happy Pride. Happy Pride, but be safe, please. Hey, God, it's crazy out there. Please be safe. <laughs> please be safe out there. Happy Pride. Happy Pride.